Ukrainians. Identity and Dignity podcast is on the air. Within the last few weeks, the world has unveiled Ukrainians as a nation of courageous and indomitable people who relentlessly struggle for their freedom. We showed our enemy what they should expect if they jeopardize our dignity. A core value of Ukrainians. A lot of people worldwide now follow the news from Ukrainian hotspots, but we believe that without understanding our identity and the circumstances that formed us, the world won't be able to understand us enough, which will limit the prospects of support and cooperation. So what makes us who we are? What is the bottom line of the Ukrainian people's dignity? In this podcast we will tell you about the milestones which form our identity and make us a part of the European community. Today we will tell you the ultimate part of our story on Donbass. Why the diplomatic tool was inefficient? Why did the West in a way embody the break in regulation of the conflict? And what was the true face of Russian pacification within Donbass? Observe it through the pages of our history. Could the war in Ukraine be prevented? Probably not, but could the world leaders avert thousands of innocent Ukrainian people being killed if they honestly tried to stop Russia several years ago? Indeed, they could. Here we will tell you why the Minsk agreements did not work from the very minute they were signed. About the Western leaders' craven and somewhat controversial reaction to the Russian aggression up until 2022. As well as provide evidence of Russian terrifying methods of torture after establishing the regime in Donbass. To extinguish the fire of war, Ukrainian authorities decided to sign and launch the long-lasting Minsk agreements. But the question is, did they actually work? The document, firstly signed in Minsk in 2014, was to resolve the turmoil in Donbass through a 12-point ceasefire deal. Its provision included prisoner exchanges, deliveries of humanitarian aid and the withdrawal of heavy weapons. But it quickly broke out as the key points were violated. Then it was up for the second try. In February 2015, representatives of Ukraine, Russia and OSCE, the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe and the leaders of two self-proclaimed separatist regions agreed on 13-point agreement. Also, France and Germany were present as international independent observers. Those 13 points were designed to some key things. An immediate ceasefire, withdrawal of all heavy weapons, continuous monitoring by the OSCE, dialogue with self-proclaimed Donetsk and Luhansk republics in accordance with the Ukrainian law, constitutional reforms in Ukraine pertaining to the decentralization, and a few more. Unfortunately, it didn't bring any success. Though OSCE has confirmed that the fighting became less intense and there were much fewer casualties compared to 2014-2015. And still, by February 2022, there are one and a half million internally displaced people in Ukraine and 14,000 people dead as a consequence of the Russian aggression. It all leads to the thought that the Minsk agreements were insufficient and inappropriate. International leaders have insisted on the Minsk format as the only proper solution to the situation. But Ukrainian and international political observers and analysts have been convinced that the implementation of Minsk is impossible. Here is the explanation of the political observer scientist Duncan Allen. 
The Minsk Agreement of September 2013 and February 2015 aimed at ending Russia's war in eastern Ukraine are based on two incompatible interpretations of Ukraine's sovereignty. By interpreting sovereignty from a Russian perspective, the analyst means a point on the decentralization of power, or as it is otherwise called, law on special status, which how Russians believed would pave the way for the federalization of Ukraine and the establishment of the de facto power in the eastern region. Russian optics is that we have three sides to the conflict – Ukraine, Russia and the two self-proclaimed republics. Articulating this rhetoric, Russia prompted Ukraine to lead a direct dialogue with terrorist LPR and DPR. The Ukrainian interpretation, on the contrary, aims to return the territories under the control of our state. It's the whole opposite, as Ukraine recognizes only two sides of the conflict – Russia and Ukraine. Also, Ukraine relinquished any proposals to hold a dialogue with two pseudo-republics, since it would be equivalent to legalization and recognition of LPR and DPR. Besides, only 12% of Ukrainian people supported the direct dialogue with those illegal states. A very comprehensive understanding of the actual situation regarding the functionality of the Minsk agreements could be reflected in the words of the head of Ukraine's mission to NATO, Natalia Halibranko. Russians have never been interested in launching a substantive part. The armaments, all the armed forces, the exchange of prisoners, etc. That is, the Russians were never interested in it. They always started reading the Minsk agreements from the end, where it was about the elections, where it was about the amnesty law. To strengthen its positions after it was quite obvious the Minsk agreements didn't work out and undermine Ukraine's legal order, Russian propaganda was rife with the narratives of holding a pseudo-referendum in the occupied territories. The BBC team worked in areas partially controlled by the militaries at that time and observed the so-called referendum. Here is how journalists recall the voting in Slovyansk. Documents were carefully revised at the checkpoints of the militants at the entrance, and men who stunk with alcohol did not hesitate to brandish a machine gun in our bus. The nearest Poland station to the city council was located at the Aviation University branch. Here we could find the voting ballots, though by the afternoon they included only one-fourth of the names near the votes. In the first hours the commission chairman spoke about the 40% turnout. In the morning the visitors came into the cafe nearby and the waitresses threatened not to sell alcohol to the guys who had not yet voted. There were no voter lists and people were just registered. During the first hour of voting, the influx of volunteers ended, and then the process continued without long queues. The procedure itself was carried out with significant violations and atrocious illegalities. The armed people provided many printed bulletins. Eventually, the militants managed to count the votes at night. The turnout surprisingly appeared to be 89%. When Putin invaded Ukraine the first time around in 2014, the West made a terrible mistake. The Russian leader had committed an act of violent aggression and taken a huge chunk out of a sovereign country. And we let him get away with it. Boris Johnson stated after the full-fledged Russian invasion of Ukraine. 
let's look at it more precisely from the Zen perspective. All Western countries condemned Russia and expressed deep concern over Ukraine's situation, but these words did not turn into decisive action. On April 13, 2014, in Geneva, Catherine Ashton expressed serious concern over the recent events in eastern Ukraine. These have been very frank, but I think constructive discussions that are looking to find the concrete steps, real practical things that can de-escalate the tensions in Ukraine. I think it was extremely important to bring us all together here to have that process of dialogue begin. The West tried to resolve the situation through diplomacy, though Norman format and the Minsk agreements. But it did not bring any fruitful results, as we mentioned before. So what did the Western leaders do? they started to impose sanctions that were not very effective. As of 2016, the blacklist of the United States, the European Union and 13 other countries, including Canada, Australia, Japan and Switzerland, included 146 Russian figures and 37 Russian companies, supporting or financing the war. Generally, this slight cancelling touched Russian major banks, high-ranking officials, businessmen, artists, etc. After more than two and a half years of sanctions, Russian officials claimed Russian economy didn't experience a tangible meltdown and wasn't devastated. It allegedly adapted to the sanctioning policies and began to develop. In 2016, Putin even stated that the country's economy started to strengthen and there were no tightening sanctions from the side of the West as a response. How the monster was let out and fueled? Well, some portion of the bitter truth should be remembered here. The United States, Great Britain and Russia were the guarantors of the Budapest Memorandum, under which Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons and got promises that the Russian Federation, the United Kingdom and the United States will not threaten or use military force or economic coercion against Ukraine, except in self-defense or otherwise in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations. Russia has been violating this document since the invasion of Crimea. Some complain the United States and Great Britain did not properly react, but there is one important point to consider. According to the agreement, the guarantor states can demand immediate action by the UN Security Council only if Ukraine is being attacked by nuclear weapons. Thus, there are no defying sanctions mechanism to punish Russia. Additionally, on 3 April 2008, a NATO summit would be held in Bucharest which aimed at paving Ukraine's future in the North Atlantic Alliance. Though some of the most prominent players, including Sarkozy, the French leader, and Merkel, the German chancellor, vetoed the decision because Russia was strongly against such a scenario for Ukraine. Even before the war in the east of Ukraine, European leaders didn't want to provoke Putin and naively thought that the ban on Ukraine's membership in NATO would pacify the dictator and they made this mistake many times repeatedly. It is quite clear that the US, as the core power of the Western world, should have been resolute in the helping Ukraine and counterpunching Russia. On January 23, 2015, US Senator John McCain called on the then US President Barack Obama to provide Ukraine with the lethal weapons. 
It's the high time for Mr. President to provide Ukraine with lethal weapons it needs for the defense to exhibit the spirit of decisiveness. If this demand is disrupted, it will be the apparent sign of weakness not only for Putin but also for the potential aggressors in the entire world. So Obama didn't take a firm position and insisted on peacekeeping. Only when Trump ruled the US did Ukraine begin to receive lethal weapons and more aid from the US. And 2021, relative to the previous years, under the Biden administration became more blissful for Ukraine in terms of military aid. Many tons of ammunition and lethal weapons were supplied. However, the armaments were insufficient, sanctions were not harsh enough. Also, some Western leaders were prone to indulge Putin, as the electorate of certain officials either supported Putin policies or was concerned that gas prices would rise, becoming dependent on Russian deliveries. For instance, in France, the National Front received a loan from a Russian bank, and its leader is Macron's main rival in the upcoming elections. Marine Le Pen, who openly supported the annexation of Crimea and Russian aggression in Donbass. As for Germany, the ties with Russia have always been quite warm. This is evidenced by the German-Russian economical project Nord Stream 2 they both began to establish in 2015. Eventually, in 2019, the two countries signed a joint document on strengthening economic cooperation. The other gesture that conveyed reverence to Russia was the arms supply by key European countries. Since 2014, the EU has imposed an embargo on arms supply to Russia due to its military aggression against Ukraine and occupation of Crimea. However, 10 EU member states – France, Germany, Italy, Austria, Bulgaria, the Czech Republic, Croatia, Finland, Slovakia and Spain – exported weapons worth 346 million euros to Russia between 2015 and 2020. It is these weapons that Russian soldiers are holding to murder Ukrainians now, as the war escalated to its full-scale phase. Consequently, Putin began to embody even greater power and impunity, putting more pressure on the West through gas policies. In 2021, Russia began to push Europe to accelerate the launch of PP2. Russia created an artificial gas shortage in the continent and raised gas prices in the EU by the 250% since January 2021. But when we come back to the topic, what was it like to live in Donbass since the Russian invasion? Well, a lot to discuss, though we have prepared it. Donbass has lost at least 10% of the previous level of GDP in five years as a result of Russia's armed aggression against Ukraine. However, the most horrific loss is human victims. Over 13,000 Ukrainian citizens died during eight years of the war in Donbass including more than 3,000 civilians. In the Donbass region occupied by Russia, law doesn't exist. Illegal detentions and imprisonment, lack of a fair trial, violation of the right to freedom of movement, religious persecution, 
forced involvement in propaganda. That is the reality that Russia brought to the Ukrainian region. Russia committed war crimes and violated humanitarian law during these eight years. Attacks against civilians and civilian infrastructure, the use of civilians as a human shield to cover military operations, mobilization of civilians in the occupied territories, attacks on medical personnel, ambulances, wounded combatants, tortures and ill-treatment. Russian forces shot humanitarian corridors with civilians during the liberation of Lysychansk by Ukraine in 2014. Russian forces shot the collection and evacuation locations in Debaltseva in 2015. Russian forces shot the outskirts of Avdiivka during the evacuation of kids in 2015. And these are just a few cases described. The world discovered Russia's crimes only after 24 February 22 while Russia used these methods for years in Donbass. Illegal armed groups sponsored by Russia and the Russian military are using terror against Ukrainian citizens to gain control of Donbass. Journalists, civic activists, volunteers, representatives of religious communities disloyal to the Russian occupation or pro-Ukrainian citizens are being persecuted, tortured and even physically destroyed. They are primarily accused in espionage and treason. Doesn't it bring to mind the falsified sentences in the Soviet Union? Illegal military groups in the occupied territories have created a network of places of detention. Human rights activists have counted 146 places of hostage detention in the territory not controlled by Ukraine. Over 300 people are still kept there, including 31 women. Since 2014, 3,360 people, both civilians as the military, ended up in captivity, including 276 women. 260 people are missing. Torture is terrifying there. Electric shocks are one of the methods. Over 200, both males and females, were raped just in three years of the war in Donbass. Ukrainian volunteer Irina Boyko, who was in captivity in Horlivka, describes the consequences of the tortures she endured. Here are the scars from the hammer. These are drills. More than 20 times the body is drilled with a drill. This is also a hammer scar. It was all broken. Here are broken knees with a hammer. Chest drilled. It's all drills, hammers, pliers, tortured as they could. And this is only a tiny piece of the gruesome nightmare witnessed. The isolation concentration camp created by Russia is already firmly established as the most horrible place in the occupied Donbass. People who were there call it a torture chamber and even hell. People who went through it were tortured with electric shocks through the genitals and anus. They were placed in coffins hammered with nails and covered with clay so that they can feel they are buried. They were raped, their bones were broken. They suffered the fake death penalty through the firing squad. And many more terrible things. Stanislav Asiev, a Ukrainian journalist and writer who personally went through the torture circles in isolation concentration camp in Donetsk states, What's going on in those basements? The person is stripped, naked, taped, so that he or she cannot move, and then they are doing whatever they want. In his book The Torture Camp on Paradise Street, he describes this place in one word. Inevitability. 
When you are put on the table and wrapped tightly with scotch tape, you can shout anything. It will not change anything. At that moment, a person feels fragility, helplessness and weakness. The daily hypnotic suggestion to a human being that he is devoid of any human traits over time actually deprives him of his strength of will and sense of dignity. Stanislav Asiyev says that psychological tortures in isolation are even worse than physical. Constant psychological pressure. They could constantly knock their rifle butts on metal doors even at night. I don't know how to convey this feeling in words, but you just shudder and jump. One of the rules, and this is also psychological torture, when the door opens at any time of the day, you have to get up from the plank bed, put the plastic back on your head, turn to the wall, and put your hands behind your back and stand. And when they knock on your door, you're ready. As you see, the diplomatic weapon was too fragile ahead of the totalitarian Russian regime that didn't wish to compromise. The Minsk agreements were crushed. Then the attempts of the West were put out by their bloody cooperation with Moscow throughout these eight years. They continued to finance the war. Unfortunately, they still do it, after all the atrocities that happened in Ukraine since February 2022. And yet, the story isn't completed. Donbass still bears a face and status in the Russian world, people are instilled with a feeling of Russianness and deliberate human rights violations happen, as they did way too often. Now, with the outrage of the full-fledged war from February 2022, the foreign minister of Ukraine Dmytro Kuleba anticipates that the battle for Donbass will remind us of the eventful battlefield of the World War II. And as the Russians lost in the most decisive battle for Kyiv, they would apparently get even more rampant in those forthcoming rounds. To get the discourse of today's war, we will begin to cover it for you in our next episode. The worst is yet to come, we can presume. But as we are warriors of light, we will be firm till the very end that obscurity and darkness will be defeated. And the truth will be ours. Glory to Ukraine!